I really enjoy recording interviews like the one you're going to experience in a moment. There's a very specific reason for that. Talking about startups, we mainly focus on the technology that's being developed by the team, uh, maybe the market and uh, how innovative they are. But what's often skipped in the mainstream media, let's say, is stories about how difficult it was for the founders to go through a period in which, for example, they didn't have money to pay the employees or maybe a big contract was cancelled by their first or second customer. So today's episode with uh, Hubert Kuzera from PlaceMe turned out to be a very interesting one because we spoke a lot about everything else but the technology. Obviously, you will understand a bit more about what PlaceMe is and how it works, but that's not where you will get the most value out of this episode. As always, please check out the list of topics that we covered during the episode. You can find them on the website. I also encourage you to leave some comments, share the episode with your friends and colleagues at work. They'll be really appreciated. That's it for the intro. Take care and enjoy. Welcome to Venture Poland Podcast. My name is Daniel Czachorowski and my goal is to promote Poland as a great partner for any business venture, especially when it comes to technology. In my podcast, I interview Polish entrepreneurs, startup founders, managers and engineers, so we can all learn from them. Enjoy today's episode. Hubert, thank you very much for being with us on the show today. How is it going? It's going well, I guess, as well as it can be during those crazy times during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that making business right now is extra challenging, extra hard due to a variety of reasons, but I can't complain, really. Okay, brilliant. Just before we started, we said that uh, there is still quite a lot of work uh, regardless of uh, the pandemic so uh, my thesis is that people actually uh, work more uh, because they they want to catch up with all the all the problems that we we had over last year so i don't know how maybe hmm? maybe but also i noticed that um, we work more due to the fact that we can't really separate our work life from private life anymore so if you're working all day in front of your bed and then you have to go to bed you don't you know you don't have this um commute home that could cleanse your mind i'm having really a lot of trouble going out of work um in those crazy times and i think that's what makes it extra challenging sure sure yeah that's true actually my friends uh, some of them complained that they do not have enough space at home to actually separate the two factors as you've mentioned and but actually that's a quite a big dilemma at place me we noticed something interesting that actually going remote at the very beginning of the pandemic was very beneficial for our efficiency and our guess is that when you reduce the commuting time when you reduce the let's say all the distractions at work you know talking to co-workers you know random things and you have the remaining time actually 
100% dedicated to work, you gain a lot of efficiency. But at the same time, there's long-term consequences that if you don't see your team, if you don't have day-to-day -day interactions, uh, well, this workplace becomes something completely else. And uh, one area when we noticed rising difficulties is onboarding of new employees. How can you be part of the team if you have never seen them, if you don't interact with them on a daily basis? So this remote working conditions are on one hand opportunity, but also, you know, a big challenge to how the company should work nowadays. This is a very important topic that you have touched on uh and I would like to come back to it a bit later in the interview, but let's just uh, stop for a moment because we started off quite quickly and uh, I always ask uh, one question at the very beginning, especially if we have a startup or tech company uh, on the show, 60 second pitch on PlaceMe. I don't know how long ago it was when you've actually done it <laughs> last time, but uh, yeah, let's just uh, try. Yes, that's something that every founder has to do, so I'm always ready. Um, Place me in a nutshell is a technology that allows you to understand what your customers are doing offline. Now, Daniel, think about all the tools that help you understand your customer online. You have Google Analytics, you have Hotjar, you have many other, just to understand how your customer is behaving on the website, how he navigates to products, and you use them basically to convert him better. But now, majority of the sales are still made offline in the brick and mortar stores on the corner of our streets. And how many tools you know that could actually help you understand this kind of customer? The answer is probably not many, if any. And this is something that we want to change because when you think about it, there are so many activities and investments made by large corporations and small corporations as well to sell on a local level that are simply being inefficient because we have no feedback about you know, how the customer actually behaves whether he's loyal to the brand or he's uh, looking for the best promo or what kind of services that he actually wants in a given area. So we created a technology that is using mobile location data to understand how the people are walking through certain stores, through certain buildings, to understand how they interact with businesses. And based on that, we help companies like FMCGs and uh, retail companies um, to optimize their investment and marketing. We are working with Carrefour, we are working with Coca-Cola and many other companies that use it daily to optimize their decision-making when it comes to marketing. Okay, brilliant. We talk here about data and I think it's not mystery anymore. Data is the key to successful growth and optimization, especially for companies that you know really understand what they're doing. And you provide data so companies should be all over you guys. Uh, my thesis is that small companies do not understand this aspect properly yet. I mean, we are a small company. We do it. It's the key factor for the growth for our company. But when I talk to my friends, they're not really on the same page with me uh, with this. So who is your ideal customer? Uh, how do you educate the market? From what I understand, it might be corporations who uh, work with you the most, but maybe I'm wrong. Now, you touched on a very important aspect in all of that because you said that data is valuable, and I don't agree with that. The data is uh, is a commodity. Mm. What you're looking for is answers. What you mm -hmm. are looking for are recommendations. And mm -hmm. um, the fact alone that you have data is not going to guarantee you a success if you don't know how to pack it uh, in a product. And that is what PlaceMe is all about because we actually 
work in a way that we aggregate data from many sources, terabytes of data, but the at the end of the day, we need to think about how customers want to interact with them and how they want to use it. And you're completely right that this conversation is much easier with large enterprises because they're um, understanding that data can help, that data can make their decisions better is much more common. But also it boils to the, down to the fact that um, sometimes smaller entrepreneurs simply do not need the data because we are able to help when you need some data about, uh, for example, locations in the whole Poland that you had never had a chance to, to visit. And then some basic information even is giving you a lot of insights. But imagine the fact that you're living somewhere uh, for a whole your life, you know, this district, like, like you'd never know anything better. Um, and now what kind of additional insights we can tell you about that area? You know it so well, right? So that is um, that asymmetry of information is a huge factor of what often entrepreneurs do not need the data to run their business smoothly. It's, it's the smaller the company is, the bigger the expertise on the local market or in the specific niche of given entrepreneur, the less demand he has for for data simply. So it's also a challenge for us how to structure the product to, to actually deliver something that will be valuable to the SMEs and small entrepreneurs where their expertise about the local market is so large, right? And that's uh, that's a huge, huge reason why PlaceMe right now is being targeted at enterprises when actually we can deliver the value because uh, the scope of the decision they need to make both in terms of, of, of range and geography is so large that it's beyond comprehension of one human. You actually need some optimization processes, but it's not really you know, obvious that this kind of recommendations or data would be valuable to, to, to everyone equally. And here's the big difference. So apart from what you just said, do you still educate the market on this or uh, is it something that's very well known by your customers and they know what they need no we still need to educate the market um, but i wouldn't really use the word educate the market but rather um, discover it together with them because it's not like we have answers and we know how the businesses can use it um, and we just need to tell it to our clients in in reality each customer is so completely different that's Often these use cases, those exact accents vary very much from customer to customer and we can inspire, but it's not like we just come and say, do this and everything will be all right. Uh, but the question here, the, the dilemma and the, the challenge here is that nobody has ever worked with mobile location data to the scope that PlaceMe actually offers. So when we approach the client, he has no clear imagination or, or, or vision how it can be used. He might have some ideas, but they have a lot of question marks starting from the basic, like what will be there for me uh, to the very you know, technical ones. Like what is the accuracy of the data? What are the, the guarantees that this is so accurate that actually I can make my decisions on? So there, there are a lot of question marks that we need to help the client navigate through in order to ensure him that this is actually a right decision and right path for him. And I think it, boils down to the fact that you know this technology that we're working in is something that we only now introduce to the market and globally there are just a few startups that offer that it's not like some other well-known technologies like search engine optimization you've read it about it so many times you know that everybody does it so when it comes to 
um, implementing it, you don't have any doubts that it would work and it would benefit you. And you know, you're just looking for the right partner. But here, you question the technology itself because it's all on the early stage of development. So it's like with every everything, I guess. We now are working with those early adopters and building a trend that later on will catch up. Catch up. And once you know, other companies would see that. Uh, their competitors are working on that. It would get much, much easier. We already see it get, getting much, much easier. Okay, okay, understood. On your website, you say that you are able to provide data about, for example, age, geolocation, gender, even income, and other very uh, specific aspects of people's lives. The fact on how you collect the data is probably quite obvious, some kind of uh, mobile devices, and then you have other methods maybe. I would like to understand a bit more about the technology, of course, if you can say a bit about it. Sure, um, but here there's a, there's a certain misunderstanding that we need to clarify before we jump into it. It's not like we gather the data about everybody's income and everybody's um, demographics. We are working on more like statistical level. We are working as a market research agency would often do. So we are doing it by assessing some things for anonymized cohorts who are working on uh, on a, you know large samples of people just to keep things anonymized so it's completely different than you know <laughs> this obvious association of universal tracking or, or or spying on people it's not it's completely not that so let me tell you how it works for you for you to have a, a better grasp on that so the majority of our data comes from uh, mobile location data Something like a GPS coordinates of mobiles given to us at random times during the day. You probably have some free apps on your mobile that have uh, asked you to share your location data because it was part of their business model. So, for example, navigation systems or some shop search that actually makes sense um, for them to use your location. But the apps are free. And there's an old rule in the tech world that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And we are using free apps, but we need to be aware that they often monetize our own data. And we are one of the, uh, the, the, the buyer, but we are getting the data anonymized. So we, we understand that there was some device on that street on that time, but we know nothing else about this person or device, right? And based on that, we we are building models who understand how the people are moving throughout the day. And for example, what was the popularity of the specific store during some time frame, and building all of types of analytics that our our clients are interested in. But it doesn't give us a lot of insights uh, onto that who does. Uh, that person was. We can try segmenting some people based on where they tend to be. So if, for example, you're visiting vegetarian places, that mobile might belong to to the person who is a vegetarian, but it always is on a large cohort level. So we're not really interested in one person. We're never interested in one person. person tells us nothing and 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 it's um and, and we're always working on a scale that actually makes this this data anonymized. But the, the thing that you mentioned uh, about the incomes, about the demographic, is that we also work on another separate data sets that, for example, uh, estimate that in this district, people are more wealthy than in other districts. 
And only combination of this all data, building some aggregations and combinations out of all those data sources can actually give us some predictions that maybe people who are working there are more wealthy than the other. But this is all based on you know, statistical reasoning and not universal traction. So the key here, I guess, is that it's not completely different from typical market research. When you have typical market research, Daniel, it happens that somebody is calling you, asking what is your age, asking what, how much you earn, where do you live, what is your demographics, and then they ask you whether you like the product. So do you feel tracked then? Do you feel that your privacy is being violated? I don't guess so because you know it's statistical data you know that it's being used on like nobody's on corporate meeting is telling well we just called daniel and he liked the product it's it's always like some statistical uh, aggregation and that is exactly what we do we never tell our clients that there's some specific person who likes your product no it's it's always so many steps in the process that actually um I'm not really thinking about it as any kind of privacy violation uh because you know even if I really wanted to, like me looking at the data, I wouldn't knew how to, you know, uh, get to one person because it's it's not personal data. Pe many people misjudge it, but it's not personal data. We can't get to a single person. Sure, I think you know the the, the privacy topic is really a thing now, and people are maybe a bit more cautious about it, but. You know, in reality, we've been selling our privacy for at least 20, 30 years already. So people are probably uh, used to it in some respect. I, I understand it completely. However, I think that some of the issues here are also um, working on misconceptions because a large uh, issue for privacy was Cambridge Analytica. But me working in this area for uh, for many years now, I actually doubt very much that Cambridge Analytica was doing what they claimed to do. Actually, there are a lot of startups who claim that they do something and actually absolutely not do it. And I really don't think that they were able to exercise such level of control over people's behavior as they claim to do, especially when we look at general trends in politics in the last decade, we see that what happened in the USA happened in many other countries. So uh, uh, people trying to boil it down just to you know one magical uh, data analytics company are, I guess, in the wrong. But, you know, I think that the tech company also didn't help by transparency. And it's often best to communicate clearly to clients how your data will be used, how your data would be secure, uh, when it's going. Actually, GDPR was a great, huge step in that direction. We were really happy um, that, that it was implemented because from our perspective, uh, a company that uses um, data in a, an ethical and, and secure manner uh, that helped us a lot because it, it got rid of a competition that wasn't, you know, so, uh, so clean with the data, let's say. Okay, cool. Talking about customers, let's talk about sales. Are you still figuring out the sales process or you maybe nailed it already? How many companies you work with? How do you sell to the big ones, let's say? So... <laughs> I don't think there's ever a point in startup when you nail something, there's always something to do. Uh, but in our case, I can honestly say that we know how to sell our product, but we don't know yet how to sell it at scale. And this is, uh, this probably would be a big focus of place me in 2021. Um, because 
in order to grow, we need to grow exponentially. And that's that's the challenge. So when you look at our clients, we already have a large portfolio of uh, great clients that we are really proud of. So I mentioned we're working with Carrefour, we're working with Eurocash, we're working with Dino, we're working with uh, Spar, Netto. So basically, if you look at the top retailers in Poland, we, we work with majority of them. We were working with Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, Mediacom, other companies as well. So there's a lot of companies that we help on a recurring basis already. And we don't have a problem showing to new customers what would be the value of our solution and 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 uh, and inspiring them to use it. So actually, it goes quite well. But in order to grow, we need to grow internationally. We need to grow you know, at a faster pace. That's a huge dilemma for a startup, how to go from a model in which you could cherish and really care about each and every of your client into some more scalable, more productized way of selling. I think it's a, it's a huge change. Um, so uh, definitely we're trying, you know, a lot of experiments here, a lot of, you know, guesses uh, and trying to find the right uh, right way to do it. In other words, so I understand your situation well, you're at the verge, let's say. So you know your craft, you have proven already quite a few things, and now you guys try to figure out how to do it quicker, better, and at scale. So in other words, to make it a proper product or maybe a variety of products for a different segment here and there. Exactly, exactly. So okay. the, the idea here is that we should be working with international clients selling and that requires bringing new people, bringing new processes and way of speaking to the client to actually be able to work at, at a scale unprecedented for us. And we shouldn't fool ourselves, you know, that this uh, it, this is a huge step for every company. Uh, and actually moving from the seat to Series A phase is a lot of work that you need to do right. Uh, it's not simply, you know, putting more adverts online. It's not simply putting more salespeople to work. Uh, it's it's a huge step and we need to make it right. So a lot of thinking in 2021, uh, but we're on a good uh, good path. We've already, we already are European player working with uh, in other countries apart from Poland. Um, we have uh, funding secured to, to, to have resources to, to go global and we're keeping our fingers crossed. Brilliant. Okay, brilliant. Uh, we will come back to this in a moment. I would like to make a step back and ask about two things, actually. When it comes to customers, so let's say we have a startup in Poland. They roughly do the same thing in terms of they create software, let's say, and they would like to sell to a big company, to an enterprise, let's say. There is this uh, thesis that in order to sell to a corporation, you really need at least 10x of improvement for them before they even start talking with you. So do you have any specific uh, insights or maybe experiences uh, for other entrepreneurs just, you know, so they understand what uh, could potentially go wrong or maybe what you've done wrong or what has to be done right at this stage? There's a lot of advice that you um, that you can actually give here, and um, there are a lot of advices that founders probably already heard, like starting with a problem. So I'll try to give the advice that I think is rarely being said. And my advice would be, don't 
be wooed by corporations. They have this weird habit of showing to startups that if you start working with us, you know, the world would be great. You can work with us alone and you'll become a great large startup. And uh, this is being shown by, for example, the acceleration programs, their, uh, their way of interacting with startups that a lot of great ideas and great founders that I've met actually went into bad path of trusting our corporation too much, uh, believing that if they only make a product for them as they want, uh, as this corporation requires, uh, that would be a great success for them because they would, you know, have a great client. But it doesn't work that way. I think that you, at the end of the day, you need to think about the whole market. And if you're 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 building an extension to our corporation, you're doing it clearly wrong. And it might sound obvious, but it really isn't because, as I mentioned, this corporations has the specific ways of of making you think that it's actually a good path. It's a good way. Um, and, and and I would say it's a trap. So you, you you get the idea here. If you're building a product based on specifications and requirements of just one corporation, regardless how big it is, not only you are making a product that may not fit the overall market and the problems of other people, but also you're you're not building a business that is anyway scalable. You are building a dependency on one partner only, and that's that's a bad thing. Also because corporations often do not know what they want. So you might run into this obvious and often uh, happening uh, roadblock that after one year, after some two years of hard work that you were not competitive yet, somebody simply scraps the project and you're left with nothing, right? So my advice would be never rely on one corporation, never trust just one corporation. Think about the overall market and build product, not the extension to, to just one company. Okay, understood. Second thing I wanted to ask about before we come back to the topic of global expansion, let's say. You've been running PlaceMe for three years uh, so far, looking at your LinkedIn profile, let's say. I would like you to give us some worst moments uh, so far when it comes to running a software startup in Poland. Uh, was it maybe finding a client, the first one, or maybe it was trying to gather the team, something that you just remember that really, really went wrong and then you've managed to fix it somehow. That'll be that'll be very interesting for me. Well, there's a question uh, whether you're asking about the worst moments, meaning the worst experiences for me as I remember them, or the most challenging things. Uh, those are two slightly separate issues. Um, when I think about worst moments, experiences. I think that, you know, there's this moment uh, when simply as the first time founders together with my with my, my team, we, we've had this impression that creating a startup would be an easy thing. This is uh, a mistake that is happening often that a lot of founders actually have that they have this impression that everything would be great because they have great products. So the world would simply love it and have no problem selling. And it's not exactly the case. And you run to this moment when all your plans or your assumptions and forecasts are clearly wrong and you're much worse prepared for that than you actually expected. You don't have enough cash, you don't have enough uh, runway. 
so this was the the worst experience for me because that happened in our case and obviously that has a lot of you know impacts because you're being stressed that you don't have enough money you you need bankruptcy and you have to work really hard to make things right again and that was in our case i think that we made two mistakes at the very beginning we thought that uh we would have no problem selling and actually we underestimated the sales cycle that we would have it's not like our product was not popular but the decision making in corporations took so long that actually we thought that we would close the deals in one month and it took us sometimes one year just you know to to sign the contract simply because you know corporations are working on their own place and combined with the fact that we also predicted that finding the investors would be very easy we expected that we didn't have any problems with cash flow but we actually started to have and i think that you know uh you know this this new bankruptcy experience is is very familiar to, to a lot of founders especially the ones that are running their business for a long time now because it's it's very uh very common and not many people talk about it because we tend to talk about our successes we tend to talk about you know the things that we do right and we don't want to boast about liquidity issues obviously uh but you need to say that it happens and it's inevitable part of founder's life and you have to be aware of the stress that it uh, puts on you you have to be aware of the toll it makes on your you know mental health uh, also how the team reacts to it nobody wants to work you know with the company with the problem and i would actually think that it would be great for the startup community to start talking about it more also to make you know founders kind of more prepared for that aspect of the work as well because it's inevitable you always run into your forecast being too optimistic about things not going according to your plan and being in a worse situation that you actually thought of uh now i can only say that you know those are the problems of the first year and it taught us a lot so making maybe the second business would be much easier um but yeah that that's that was interesting okay okay understood so overestimating your guesses or overestimating your predictions on how things will will go it's a bit like with other things maybe for example currently i'm planning to renovate a house and i'm setting up a budget for it what you're just saying is that i should at least double the the budget for the renovation then oh no uh, that's actually a great comparison daniel because when you think about that uh, a situation in which you are planning a renovation of a house or any sort of project let me let me emphasize that any sort of project regarding whether it's a personal project or enterprise project the situation in which you run to delays cost overruns or anything else is not really rare right there's always some kind of troubles on the way that's inevitable but here's the thing usually in a startup you're so scarce on the resources that every situation like this is kind of a life and death situation and that's really challenging so when i'm saying that you know investors send us a trash 2 weeks later or the customer signed the deal 6 months later than we anticipated it's not a big deal really in the grand scheme of things but in the first 6 years of your operations it's really life and death situations sometimes because if you don't have the money you can't create it out of nowhere you have to actually come to to your your employees and say well there's troubles on the way and you know that's that's a challenge you know being scarce on resources in the first stage is really like the worst part and and I'm glad to have it uh behind me 
Okay, brilliant. Well, obviously, congratulations that you've managed to go through it. I think it's it's also important to state that there are companies that did not go through the same problems in a way that they just collapsed and, you know, they're not with us anymore. So congratulations on that. I would like to ask as a follow-up to this question, because it's, it's something that just popped into my mind. How do you track your progress when it comes to your, let's say, operations? Do you have like a uh, monthly KPIs for certain aspects of your business or is it just uh, very basic things like okay this is how much we have this is how much we spend for overheads and things like that I'm just trying to understand after two or three years of running a company finding clients etc you probably have at least some kind of understanding on what are the most important factors to track when it comes to startup so maybe that would be something interesting for for other uh, entrepreneurs and listeners? Um, that's a tough question because from my experience, often when we were set to select some KPS to track our business, some kind of pivot later down the path just basically meant that these KPS are not adequate anymore. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's actually better to be quite flexible about your KPIs rather than be strict on finding some some you know key metrics and then sticking to them no matter what let me give you an example for the first part of our operations we thought about monitoring page views as a, you know one of the kpis to indicate the popularity and uh, the interest in our business and then track conversion to either registering or scheduling a demo but after some time we simply noticed that executives in corporation don't work that way Executive corporations talk to you via email. They do not use these buttons. They do not visit websites. They work by presentations. They work by you know direct meetings. And we would have KPA that is not reflecting our performance, right? So that's why I'm talking about flexibility. You might track it. Yes, great. But then you have to have it as flexible as anything that you pivot. But here's one very important thing that we uh, really understood to track and the best KPI for us is a profit. And this is something that's obvious for startups because you know a lot of companies simply do not turn profit and they do not anticipate to turn profit for several years now prioritizing growth. But at some point in time, me and Tomek, after some you know talks with investors, uh, simply decided to focus on the profitability rather than growth because being profitable makes many things much easier. You don't have this deadline into which you have to persuade somebody to your idea to find investors and funds to give you extended runway. You can actually build your business more healthy because you understand you know, how things impact profitability, how to make your work scalable and profitable uh, rather than you know, simply grow kind of a rework style. Let's make uh, that comparison that you're actually burning money and not maybe creating the value that could one day lead to profitability. And um, many people think that it's not possible to turn profit in the early stage startup. I think it's possible. And you should think about that because it makes your life much, much easier. Okay. Okay. Understood. Let us now uh, come back to the topic of expanding your company into other markets, let's say. I did manage to understand from your website that you have a office in Portugal. What's the story there? Why Portugal? That's uh, that's true. 
we have an office in Lisbon, but that's actually because we are a Portuguese company. Back in 2017, when we were just creating the company, we just, you know, registered our website. We just applied for the first event. And the offers from different startup accelerators start pouring in. Actually, I'm quite surprised how some accelerators are effective at scouting because, you know, we didn't have anything, but they already scouted us. And one of the accelerators wrote to us an email. It was actually one of the first that we received with a content saying more or less, come to Lisbon. We give you several thousand euros. We take only 1% of your startup. We would have great time. And for us not being experienced in startup board, we thought that it's a kind of a, sounds like a scam. <laughs> Somebody wants to give us money, but we don't have anything and they want so, so little equity. Uh, but we did our research. We found that actually it's a legit startup acceleration program in Lisbon and we applied and they invited us. We spent uh, several months working from Lisbon and working with them on our early stage product. And I think it was a really good experience for PlaceMe because not only we didn't have the knowledge about building a startup back then, for example, customer development and, and ways of, you know, being lean at the early stage, and we could actually have somebody to, uh, to get knowledge from, but also, I don't think that knowledge was in Poland back then. We were at some acceleration in Warsaw and Poland. And I think that in our ecosystem, we don't have maybe such knowledge or maybe such expertise in sharing that knowledge that we wouldn't be able to get those insights in, in Poland. So it was a really great time for us in Lisbon, but also we founded first uh, investors there. Three uh, VCs invested in PlaceMe, trusting us that we will make great product. And we incorporated our company in Lisbon. But since founders are Polish, Poland is a great market growing much larger than Portuguese. We decided that, well, let's make Poland the first country on, on a PlaceMe's roadmap. And this is actually kind of duality that we have. Many people associate that with, uh, with being a Polish company. We actually, you know, technically speaking Portuguese. We're uh, the founder, the team is Polish. So, you know, we work on, on this multicultural um aspect here i think it's very interesting because some time ago when i uh, spoke with an investor on the show as well he was a german investor basically he said that you know companies in general they shouldn't even think about localizing themselves just in the country where they belong uh, where they were raised and that's it because that's pointless from a business perspective you need to go out and search for best options for you uh, regardless if you're from Poland Germany or Portugal and you're some kind of an example here because someone from Portugal you know placed the bet with you guys and currently you're growing and you know both countries pretty much uh, benefit from that fact I mean Poland obviously but you know just the fact that you pay taxes in Portugal, or maybe not, I don't know. It's a completely separate thing, I think. So so from, from the company growth perspective and from uh, the technical aspects, how you build your technology, etc., I think it's it's uh, country agnostic, but it's it's a very interesting example. I don't know what you what you think about it. Uh, I completely agree. Also because, you know, it's not a choice. It's, it's not like we are either Portuguese or Polish or either German or Dutch. Actually, when you're thinking about building a global business, you need to 
at some point at least structure yourself based on several countries to some extent obviously uh, and especially given how europe is interconnected into one single market with strong bonds between each and every country uh, i don't think that why that is that the issue you know and problems about thinking about it that way also you mentioned paying the taxes we pay the taxes everywhere practically both in portugal and poland so so yes two countries are 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 benefiting from the fact and um it's also the question uh, i agree completely with you that's also a question of you know thinking about your company in in an international way the fact that you're building supply somewhere so operations does not mean that you have to build demand uh, so sales and 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 your main market in in the same country could be two totally different countries and you should actually go where it makes more sense I would like to ask about one thing because you have mentioned a very specific problem I think that I see or maybe I feel that it is somewhat present in Poland. You said that you were not able to get some kind of advice or expertise or experience from Polish VC or investors uh, ecosystem if you would compare it now with what you have received from Portugal. I would like you to elaborate on this a bit more because I think that we really need to talk more in Poland about what we do, how we do mistakes, just, you know, open up a bit the conversation. It's it's not, you will not steal my customers and I will not steal your customers just because we talk about some kind of technical aspect of running a business. I think that's a bit of a misunderstanding here in Poland. We're not ready yet maybe to openly discuss about things like for example getting a startup running what do you think what you said suggests that it's actually uh due to the fact that people do not want to help each other and i don't think that's the issue here okay but i rather think that the question here is that some people that are trying to help others really shouldn't and that's the thought coming from the fact that i see this tendency in poland that you have corporations advising startups, you have VCs advising startups, you have entrepreneurs who build their own company advising startups. But all of those three cases did not run startup themselves. They run something similar, but not the same. And how could you think that you know what problems of the startups are if you work your whole life in the corporations? You might know something about the economy, something about business, but the actually the greatest advice that somebody can give to a startup would be a former founder because then he knows all the challenges that the startup had and what i see on the polish conferences polish events is a lot of you know executives giving advices talking about some aspects of how to acquire customers how to set the offer how to set the product but this is coming from completely different experiences that are not simply relatable and even yesterday i was on some kind of conference and People were advising on a very specific topic of creating offer. And it was actually a former corporate executive advising to startups. And I, I simply could, you know, the one thing I could think of is that's not really relatable to my challenges in business. Like you're coming from a perspective of a large corporation at optimizing their products, but it's completely different. And I think that's that's the biggest issue here, that actually we're promoting the, the, the wrong um perspectives. Now, also it's being, I kind of think, um, emphasized by how we are building our venture market because 
a lot of VC funds are being created by the people who have some success as a businessman, but not exactly in startups. And that's okay. That's completely agree. But that's the point you need to be aware that you not really know what's working in startups. And I was approached, for example, by investors who were successful in gym uh, sector, and they wanted to transfer their best practices from gyms and fitness sectors into place me. It's not the same business. It's completely different. Why would you do that? And I think that's 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 a big dilemma for us. In Portugal, we were mostly advised by the former founders, people that had the same problems and could, you know, had our perspective. And that was really valuable. I think that's, that was was great about Portugal. Okay, great. So, also, okay. Yep. I don't know. There's one thing that I'd like to add. Uh, and I don't know if that's separate or, or, or in the topic. But I also notice one important thing about the Polish market, that we are very much technology-driven. And that's both on, you know, like a strategic country level, but also in a way of thinking of specific founders, that we have this weird approach that if we find or develop great technology, all the success would appear out of itself, right? So we need to develop some great machine learning algorithm. We need to develop some electric car, and then all the problems would simply solve itself because the product would be so great. And if we compare it to the way of thinking of Portuguese, it's actually completely different. They don't care about tech. Tech is useless if it doesn't deliver value to your clients. If you can take something very, very, very traditional, but package it in a way that would actually solve clients' problem, that's great. That's product. That's business. It's about problem. It's about value that delivered to the clients, not the technology. And we might you know, bolster on a national level that we are creating this great tech, but What's tech worth if it's not solving problems, right? And I think that's the biggest issue right now of the Polish tech scene. Brilliant. Okay, thanks. One last thing before we shut down for today. I always ask this question at the very end as well. Mm -hmm. What did you learn recently that helps you do your job better? I would like to understand what do you think? Because at, at your level, let's say you have your own struggles, you went through certain things, but maybe something that you have learned recently that uh, that it's very valuable. What do you think? <laughs> um, that's a tough one. One key observation for me here is um, that actually there are some limits to me as a human, and uh, that's uh, that's something coming from the guy that was you know in this financial sector that is well known for long working hours and actually. Um, strong belief that actually you can just work during the night and basically um, work will be done and you'll simply crunch until you make it. But here I'm I'm learning that as I'm getting you know more and more into into the startup journey, uh, there are some limits to what I can do, and I may not think about that. But there's some if I do it for a long extended period, if I crunch or if i just manage poorly it would take toll on some aspects of my life that i didn't think about previously and it's actually a bad advice that some founders are giving to other founders that basically you have to work day and night because your success depends on it you actually have to balance things out because it's not like your business at the end of you know two years would be better if you're just working days and nights stressed out because it impacts your relationship with the team. It impacts the culture that you build. It impacts your personal life. And you have to also balance it out. You can build much 
better healthy business, just thinking about balancing and not, you know, putting everything in one basket and crunching things until, you know, they get done. I don't know if I make sense, but those are, you know, some some interesting observations that I'm yet exploring. But I think that's 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 something that, you know, um, we kind of tend to forget that business is not just built on the amount of worked hours. Business is not built on uh, the the output or the revenues or the profits. It's about you and your team, really, how how they are, how they feel, if they are happy. If your team is miserable, but you're turning out a great profit, well, are you a good manager? Really, are you a good manager? That's the question. Brilliant. Very good one. Very good one. I really like this uh, ending for today's episode. I really appreciate your time, uh, Hubert. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I will keep my fingers crossed, obviously. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Daniel.